CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody. I'm Bill Nygut. It's time for another Political Rewind. We have so much to talk about and such a terrific panel. I don't want to waste any more time. I want to get right to introducing everybody and start the conversation. On Fridays, of course, my partner has been for nine years, Jim Galloway, uh, the former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And now, Jim, you do still write occasionally. And before I introduce everybody else, just very briefly, because Chase McGee, I'm going to ask you to post a link to this. You've written, and I think it's on AJC.com now, just a wonderful story about a reunion between the families of Alexander Stevens. He was the Georgian who was the vice president of the Confederacy and the descendants of the slaves who Stevens kept on his plantation. It's a remarkable story, Jim. Yeah, it's it was it was it was uh, it was a two day event on Juneteenth weekend, and it was it was on the grounds of Liberty Hall, which is uh, the 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 Alexander Stevens estate and the state park there, and and you had white descendants of of a half brother of of Alexander Stevens there, and uh, and and black descendants uh, descendants of of Eliza Stevens. Who, who fam, their family lore says that uh, Alexander fathered her, her first child. Uh, it's not not uh, DNA hasn't proved it yet, but uh, but uh, that's that's their that's their their kind of touchstone to the to the whole whole place. It was it was very moving. I, I really recommend people read it. I want to read one quote from it. A woman named Jill Patton was she on the Stevens side or the uh, slave side? Uh, Eliza. Yeah, she was on the on the, uh, on the enslaved side. She said to the group as they gathered um, that she wanted to quote for them the words of Martin Luther King Jr. during the March on Washington, in which he said, I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. And that happened between the Stevens family uh, descendants and those of the slave. Jim, it's a wonderful piece, and I hope people will all read it. Thank you very much. Um, we're also really <clears throat> delighted that Kevin Riley, the uh, former editor in chief, now uh, editor at large for the AJC, joins us uh, today. Kevin, uh, thank you so much for being here on a Friday instead of your usual Thursday. People know that we all can see each other on Zoom. Please tell us what hat you're wearing. I've got my University of Dayton hat on because we had a player drafted in the second round of the NBA draft uh, last night. So we're proud of that. And uh, it's great to be here, Bill. And I, I want to make you a promise today. If you and I disagree, unlike me our yeah. uh, member of Congress, I will not call you a bad name. I promise that I will do that. <laughs> we are going to talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene and her fight with Lauren Boebert later in the show. It. The hits just keep happening with MTG. Donna Lowry uh, is here. She, of course, host of GPB TV's Lawmakers, and now uh, coming on board to do some reporting for Morning Edition and ATC. How are you, Donna? 
I'm doing well. And I am so glad to know there'll be no name calling on this show today. <laughs> Adrian Jones is back with us as well. She is a professor of political science and the director of the pre-law program at Morehouse College. Hi, Adrian. Adrian, you're muted. Hi, Bill. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's a pleasure to be here in this second to last week of Political Rewind. Well, we, I don't want to talk about that on today's show. We, yes, we spent sir. way too much time talking about it earlier in the week. Uh, so we're just going to have a regular political rewind. Um, all right, let's start with what I think is a, I think all of us agree, is a, a story that is really been troubling uh, to all of us. Um, and it sort of pretends what the future could be for educators, parents, school administrators, and students themselves. Um, an elementary school teacher, and, and I, I've been looking everywhere to make sure I have the last name pronounced correctly. I couldn't find it. I hope I get it right. Her name is Katie Rinderell, I hope. Uh, she read to her fifth grade class of gifted students at Due West Elementary School in Cobb County a international best-selling book called My Shadow is Purple, a children's book. Um, she had given her students a choice of a number of books that she would read to them, and that was the one they wanted most, My Shadow is Purple. And one of the things that the book does is it talks about uh, diversity and um, how we're all different, um, how, but how we can embrace our differences, whether it's uh, race, religion, ethnicity. I guess there's a, a brief reference in the book to uh, gender identity. But then she went on and she had her students write about their own shadows. And I want to read you just one of them. One fifth grade student. My shadow is white, an underestimated thing. When mixed with colors, it can do amazing things, but left by itself, it's kind of Bland. And there were other fifth grade kids who wrote these remarkable statements. Kevin Riley, a parent, complained, and she has now been put on administrative leave pending a hearing, but it is unlikely she is going to be able to teach at Due West this year because she's in violation of the so called new uh, divisive concept law uh, that the state of Georgia passed this last session. Yeah, and I really appreciate the uh, AJC's Tai Tagami sorting through this so that we, because uh, we first heard about it yesterday, and uh, and you know there's there are different reports about it out there, but just exactly what's going on, and typical of the Cobb County School District, you know they don't have much to say, and and of course they use that old line, this is a personnel issue, but I think that it's going to be really important that this case, this situation be as out in the open as possible for a couple reasons. First, I think there's going to be a real question of justice and common sense here, but more importantly, look, the legislature passed or these laws, the, 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 uh, the standards commission, you know, has all this guidance and now we have a teacher who's caught up in it. Well, let's clarify this. Let's make sure the legislature and others really 
realize when you make rules like this, how they play out in the classroom is not nearly as simple as you might imagine it to be. And we have thousands of teachers out there who need to understand what's expected of them, no matter their personal political views or anything else. They're the ones who have to make this work. John O'Lowry, this is one of those stories where I wish we had you back in your role as one of the leading education reporters in North Georgia when you were back at WXIA, 11 Alive News. Um, But I think Kevin makes a good point, and you're certainly welcome to comment on any aspect of this you'd like. But one of the issues that uh, this uh, issue, this story raises is um, there's very little clarity about just what a divisive concept is. And teachers are sort of dancing around trying to figure out what they can and cannot talk about. Yeah, the law has had this chilling effect on the classroom since it uh, it became a law. And it, I have talked to teachers who are still trying to figure out what they can and cannot say, how they're very careful about their the, the materials they choose, the way they present lessons, that kind of thing. It's really tied their hands on a lot of things. I, this teacher sounds like she did the right thing in terms of talking to the students. She's a gifted uh, teacher of gifted students. So she talked to the students. They, you know, brought their ideas into this conversation. And then she made it more than just a book, but uh, a complete lesson. Right now, you have teachers who are not going into the profession. I remember doing stories on how, in the high school level, they were trying to start treating young students interested in going into teaching just like they do athletes where they had signing days for going into the profession and things like that those things you don't hear about as much at the college level i'm hearing from professors who are telling me that teachers aren't that students aren't as interested in teaching i know one student who started off interested in teaching all of this came out and she changed her major so a lot of this is really having a tough effect on what's going on in the profession hampering teachers and the the sad part is there was a survey last year by the Professional Association of Georgia Educators last fall that said that, you know, so we know that five years is the mark for teachers when they leave the profession. Um, apparently, last year, 20% of new hires in this survey of 4,600 school staffers said that they were considering leaving the profession within 20 years. That is up from 12% the, the year before. So this kind of thing, these kinds of stories make it really difficult for students to get to the kind of teachers who have a passion for the profession and really want to do some really great things for our students. And I think that part of it is really sad. Donna, I mean, I'm sorry, Adrian, I want to uh, read to you a quote that, again, I I hope I'm saying her name right, Rinderle, it's uh, R-I-N-D-E-R-L-E, made. She said, school districts label certain topics pornographic and divisive. Yet when I asked school administrators what divisive concept means, they didn't know and told me they'd research it. They never told me. But then here's an even possibly, that's the practical quote. But here's maybe a more important quote that she gave. It's so important to teach children to be supportive of each other, true to each other and to themselves. The lives, experiences, and self-identities of students should be value, validated and celebrated. <laughs> Children are especially harmed when they're not made to feel loved, appreciated, and validated for who they are and their uniqueness. 
Adrian, I can imagine the conservative legislators find that statement offensive, and yet it's fairly true, isn't it? It's pretty true. Um, I think so. And I mean, what strikes me about these laws, the protect students' rights and the harm to minors law, it seems to reserve a right for parents to complain and that that complaint is dispositive, right? So this person, um, the teacher is now um, essentially suspended, I think with pay, but I see it as very unlikely that she ends up back in the classroom based upon a parental complaint that came from discussion with the students um, who, you know, are reported to have had a good experience and to have learned something about um, the diversity of Georgians and people around the world. Um, if we're going to have laws like this, I feel like there need to be standards so that teachers can understand what they're supposed to be doing. Um, I think it's destabilizing not only for educators, but also for students, right? Those gifted and talented students are not getting this teacher who they seem to trust back in the new year. Um, and I think it challenges Georgia's educational mission. Um, the Department of Education says that its desire is to provide leadership, guidance, and resources to help schools meet the educational needs of all students and prepare them for success in the global economy. And in my view, that means some discussion of diversity, some discussion of how people are different, um, discussion of this Georgia history, um, like Jim Galloway's uh, review of the meeting of the descendants of slaves and slave owners. I'm saying these are issues that are live in Georgia um, that need to be a part of the educational system. Jim? Yeah, uh, let me tell you a little bit about this school. It's one of the smallest elementary schools in, in Cobb County, uh, and it is considered one of the best. Has maybe five hundred and fifty kids in it, seventy-five uh, percent white. But uh, there's there is a, a uh, its footprint uh, is is very competitive in the real estate market because homeowners want to uh, want want to they, they want their kids to go to that school or at least they have wanted their kids to go that to that school uh, uh, my two my two kids went to that school they were in the gifted program I was Clarence the big red dog in that school <laughs> I know this school uh, and 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 I am I am just terribly terribly upset uh, uh, I have uh, already heard from one parent uh, whose kids were taught by by this by this teacher. Uh, that's Sarah Riggs Amico, the uh, the former candidate for lieutenant governor. I think you can expect her to get involved in this fight. It because it's uh uh, uh so it's it's going to this is going to be a uh, a very hot topic this summer. I think. Um, really, one last uh, uh, point about this, and and then we will move on, although I think this is a conversation that I hope we start today. Uh, Kevin, you want to weigh in. Let me get to you first. Yeah, I, you know, I want to go back to what Adrian said. You know, she she was talking about policy, the, the goals of educating <clears throat> children in Georgia. So I think, as Jim points out, we need to think about this personally. I guarantee you that every person on this panel and almost every single person listening could tell a story of a teacher who somehow touched them at a crucial point in their life and sent them on their way. And so really quickly for me, I, we've, I've had a number of recent uh, retirement celebrations. My high school English and journalism teacher drove 
over 600 miles from Cleveland, Ohio to join me. And that is the person who, who, who sent me into this career because at a crucial moment in my life, he found a way to reach me and help me understand who I was. And I worry about the children in that school because every kid needs that and deserves that. And almost every person I've ever talked to who is successful has a story like that. Kevin, he made you the editor-in-chief of your high school paper, which really launched your career. And the reason I point that out, and I don't want to take a lot of time with this, I had the exact same experience. I was a failing high school student. I didn't care about studying at all. I had a journalism teacher who inspired me, who said, you are going to do great things someday. I want you to be the editor of my high school paper. His name was Norman Fry, and he did send me on my way. We need teachers like that. Jim, one last point. Uh, yeah, just just two two very quick points. Uh, uh, number one, uh, uh, the, the the attorney for this teacher says that the the book that in dispute here uh, was purchased at a school book fair. It was yeah. purchased within the school. Uh, so 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 there is that. Also, the the parental complaint was lodged by a a, a by a parent who is also a teacher in the district. And that's so. So you're you're going to this is going to this is going to create some tension within the within uh, the Cobb County teacher uh, world. Well, and and far beyond that, I think we are seeing the beginning of what could be very difficult times as this law really is implanted in the heads of parents who want to object to what their kids are learning. And Donna, this could spiral in to a massive uh, controversy that's going to cause fights in schools all over the states, potentially. No, absolutely. I think Jim is right that this is just the beginning. And the, for those who, who who don't understand how the system works, <clears throat> she uh, all teachers are offered contracts before they finish the school years, basically. And if she hasn't signed a contract, it, it means that they're trying to let her go. So there, there sounds like there might be something that comes up before the school board in terms of, you know, a personal uh, personnel session that people won't be public. But in the I, I predicted that at the next school board meeting, you will have a lot of people there and very interested in talking about this. And I want to say the same thing about, about the journalism. Um, I was a journalism teacher who made me the editor in chief of the paper also and who changed my life. So I think that those kinds of things are so, so very, very, very important. And I was in Grand Forks, North Dakota, a black woman, a black child in, in North Dakota, but a white teacher who decided to do that. So she changed my life. So I had to get that out. So I know Adrian wow. wanted to comment. Too. Adrian, yeah. jump in I, I, uh, before we finish this topic. I just want to say that this is a framework that we don't want. Right. We're dealing with the same thing on the voting side. If we're talking about, you know, we're going to talk about those Dominion voting systems, this idea that you can just make a complaint that it is correct because it is your opinion and then fail a system that is operating effectively for folks in the state is extremely problematic in a manner that, um, you know, I think has wide reaching implications that we're already playing with. And um, so. You know, I don't want people to get comfortable with this in an educational context because I think they get comfortable with it um, in other parts of our system that involve everyone. 
All right. Thank you all for a really important conversation on that subject. I want to move on. Um, anybody who paid attention to the January 6th committee or read the stories that came out of it or even before the committee met knows the story of uh, Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Shea Moss. They were uh, volunteers, election workers at Fulton County's um, uh, center down at United Center, where votes were counted. Uh, Donald Trump himself, Rudy Giuliani, and other allies of the uh, uh, theory of the Trump theory that the election was a fraud here, claim that claimed that Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss were feeding fake ballots into the system uh, because they claimed video showed that. Of course, it turned out to be a lie. Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss testified before the January 6th committee in one of the most emotional uh, moments of the entire hearings because they talked about how these two women who had been volunteering public service were demonized, were called out by Trump by name, had their lives threatened, um, were afraid to uh, go out and shop at the grocery store. And we knew because Brad Raffensperger's office did three recounts of the state ballots that what Trump and Giuliani were claiming was fraudulent. And it's interesting that it's only now that state officials, after another investigation, a formal investigation by GBI and FBI, Kevin, have said no evidence at all that there was fraud involved in this. So thank goodness there's this final note that completely exonerates these two women. But it's like that famous quote, where do I go to get my reputation back? Yeah, it sure is. And, and on one hand, you know, we really have to respect that uh, uh, investigators need to take the time to really find out what happened. And and sometimes in our society, I think we have rushes to judgment or we get frustrated with investigators, but it does take time. On the other, this is just appalling. I mean, made up out of whole cloth that these folks were doing something that they were not doing was never the truth was never close to the truth so you just wonder i know that they've been part of some lawsuits and some other things and you wonder how all that turns out but wow i mean what a terrible experience jim yeah uh the uh the the specific accusation uh one of the, one of the many specific accusations was that they uh the uh the 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 conspiracy conspiracy uh people said that they were passing thumb drives back and forth yeah which turned out to be uh throat lozenges yeah. uh yeah. it was uh the suitcases that they were said to be pulling out uh, with 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 uh, made up ballots were were uh, those were suitcases that regularly hold ballots uh, as 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 they are as as they are uh, 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 processed. It was and 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 look, this was to to give uh, Brad Raffensperger some some credit here. This was called out. I mean, he called this out immediately. Uh, this was this was this was not he. This did not go unanswered uh, when it, when uh, Giuliani made these accusations in December of 2020, and yet it just had it it had because of because of where we are right now because of where the where the uh, 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 where where the conversation is politically in in this country, uh, it just kept having a life. It had a life. And, and and I would I would venture to say that it's it's uh, you still have people who are going to be citing it for you for for years to come. 
who still believe it no matter what uh, investigations and recounts uh, show. Adrian, there's a, kind of a couple of really related stories to this. Um, w- one of them is that this week, the state election board uh, said that Fulton County did not require an, a takeover by the state. We know that when uh, uh, the legislature passed SB 202, the revision to the state election laws, one provision would have allowed the state to take over a county election office if they found enough problems. And there was concern they would target Fulton County uh, because it's such a heavily Democratic uh, county. That did not happen. The election board said, yes, they've had problems, but they were working to address them. And so they're exonerated. But what's interesting is that Coffee County, where, again, Trump allies, including the head of the election office, went in after the election and worked with a firm here in Atlanta, computer firm, to get access to dig in to the election machinery down there. The GBI has had months and months and months and still has released no reports of an investigation of what happened down there. I guess in my view, the both of these investigations have taken forever. Nothing in Coffee County, where there's more evidence that nefarious and problematic and illegal behavior with regard to the election, in fact, occurred, versus with um, Shea Moss and um, her mom, where they've already suffered uh, the harassment, the reputation uh, pain um, of what happened with Giuliani and Trump. I know that they have some defamation cases out there that they may be getting some kind of recompense on. But if you read that 10-page uh, report, um, you can see how shaky the stories of those who were complaining against these women were, even from the report perspective. And because of the posture, because you know charges were sort of brought against Shay Moss and her mom, there's no accountability for those who have essentially made these fraudulent complaints. So we've got bad action in Coffee County, no accountability. We've got fraudulent and bad action um, with the Fulton County uh, um, precinct where Shady Moss and her mom were, and no accountability. Um, This, for me, particularly in thinking about voting rights, is extremely problematic. Donna, one other uh, uh, story that relates to all of this that that does, it is somewhat troubling. Uh, There was a report released this past week uh, that did look at potential security problems in the Georgia election system, the Dominion uh, machines. The report said there are vulnerabilities that could allow a hacker to change votes. But there was another report that said, yes, it's possible, but it's a very remote possibility because uh, the Secretary of State's office has sa- safety procedures that really would counter any effort to change votes. But it's another example of how, as Galloway points out, the story about Shay Moss and Ruby Freeman is going to continue on and on because now uh, uh, we've got Kelly Leffler, we've got Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, two Republicans, saying we are vulnerable. Maybe votes were changed in the 2020 election. Maybe they'll be changed in the future. Donna? Right. So here's here's this reports that, you know, uh, saying that nothing bad happened. And then there's this just little tiny crack 
this little tiny crack that says, okay, there's an opening for possible interference and we're going to continue mm. to take that crack and look into it and 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 really continue to make people think that something possibly could have happened during the election. And so, you know, despite the fact that they have uh, helped um, help those those two women, Shay Moss and her mom deal with this situation, there's still this shade over what happened. And, and that will continue. And that's unfortunate that that'll continue. But then there's the political part of this, because those who are talking about this are two people who may possibly um, run for governor against uh, Secretary Raffensperger, who, uh, you know, Kelly Leffler and um, Senator, uh, I'm sorry, Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones are looking at that. So you, you're, you've kind of got to look at where some of this information is coming from and why it's being put out there. But there, it, it just it seems to not, there are people who don't want this conspiracy theory to end. Kevin, quick word before the break. This show is about the truth, Bill. I know you're always working on that. So uh, to me, it's very simple. Set everything aside. On one side, you have Kelly Leffler, who called for Raffensperger's resignation at the behest of Donald Trump. And you have Burt Jones, a fake elector. On the other side, you have Brad Raffensperger and Gabe Sterling. Who do you think is right about this based on everything we've seen over the past few years? I think it's pretty obvious. Kevin Riley. Thank you for summing it all up so succinctly. That was very good. All right, let's get to our first break. Back with more in a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Professor Adrian Jones, Donna Lowry, Kevin Riley, Jim Galloway on today's edition of Political Rewind. Donna, I'm going to go off script. I didn't send out a note about this to anybody, but you reminded me in a note you sent to me, and we'll just talk about it very briefly, uh, that tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. uh, Wade. We talked about it extensively on the show on Tuesday, but I'd like to read, the reason I'm bringing it up now is that Linda Greenhouse, the brilliant New York Times veteran whose writing on the Supreme Court is just superb. Uh, She had a column in today's paper about all of the health issues that women who are not allowed to get abortions because of restrictions or outright bans have dealt with, scary health emergency, doctors saying how many problems they're facing. There was a report issued, Linda said, from the University of Texas and the University of California at San Francisco that documented many cases of women in jeopardy for all of this. And then here's what she asked. She said, here's the question. A year after sowing so much chaos and misery, are any of the five members in Justice Samuel Alito's Dobbs majority sorry, even a little, 
I'm not so naive as to think there's even a slim chance they'd reverse themselves. I just wonder whether they feel even a twinge of regret. Powerful data. Yeah, it, it is very powerful. I think a, a lot of reflection is taking place right now. One year. Um, it, it, first of all, it's hard to believe it's just been a year. For me, it just seems longer that we've been dealing with this issue. But I, I think that uh, there is a lot of reflection on on how things have changed in this country, where where things are for women, uh, the um, the over, overwhelmingly. Well, I wouldn't say overwhelmingly. There, there is a, uh, a feeling that women are um, the, the, the women are have lost something major when it came to the, this decision, this Dobbs decision, and trying to figure out what, where things stand. In Georgia, we, we know that um, we're still they're still trying to figure things out. We've got the, the six weeks and the um, where uh, cardiac fetal activity is um, determined in terms of uh, what happens next. Mm. So we've got, you know, we've got a whole, a lot of people on both sides of this issue still trying to figure out where we stand and putting these, these, this issue back in the hands of the state, uh, the states has still given us, um, uh, a lot to, to really kind of address in all of this. And it, 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 um, it occurs to me that, I have a feeling that this time next year we'll still be dealing with a lot of these issues, still trying to figure them out. This is not this is not a, an easy anniversary to have, um, but it is an important one to for us to think about and look at where we are right now. Adrian uh, Gallup released a poll just a few days ago of uh, Americans' attitudes about abortion. I want to read you just the top lines: a record high. 69% say abortion should generally be legal in the first three months of pregnancy. Most, American, um, uh, uh, most Americans oppose abortion later in the pregnancy, but 37% say it should be legal in the second three months, 22 in the last uh, three months. I think it's that first three months, the first trimester, that really tells this story. Almost 70% of Americans say women should have the right to choose in those first 12 weeks? I mean, we're speaking here again as if it's opinion-based, right? This is medical care. <laughs> um, and so I certainly think, this is just my personal opinion, that people should have at least three months. In addition to the fact that, you know, I'm really concerned about Black uh, maternal mortality in terms of uh, births in the United States, 70% of 100, you know, 69.9% 9 of 100,000 deaths result in death for Black women. Um, I did not get to read the article that you mentioned earlier, but I have persistently over the last year been concerned about um, having a full slate of medical options available for women and not just for women who are, you know, poised to get an abortion, for women who are having complications, who need access to all of the options. And often this is women who are trying to get their babies out, but they're having problems and, you know, the inability to um, have all of the options is really dangerous for Americans. If the Supreme Court is not, um, does not feel guilty yet, um, I would hope that the medical impact of this will show itself and that at some point people will make some smarter decisions about whether or not uh, medical care is available for women who are trying to bear children. Kevin? 
Adrian makes a, a great point that it, this goes so far beyond, you know, the argument, the discussion is about abortion, but it really affects reproductive and health care for women, period. And, and that is in this state, a very serious and troubling issue. If you visit even with the you make even the most cursory visit with the statistics hey one quick thing too let's not forget the status of the law in georgia right it was challenged uh in fulton county superior court where a judge ruled that in fact the law couldn't take effect the case was basically the idea that under georgia's constitution legislature legislature cannot pass a law that is illegal at the time it was passed and that's the case they took fulton uh, they won that case in Fulton. It was appealed to the Georgia Supreme Court, which issued a stay to uh, that allowed the new law to go in effect. And the court has not yet ruled. Um, so there's still a possibility that Georgia could end up with the abortion law it had before all this started. Jim, I'll bring you in, but there was one intermediate step. It was a federal case, uh, appeals court that said, no, no, the law can go into effect. So it is. Uh, so it's now yes in the in the uh, uh, embrace of the Georgia State Supreme Court, uh, and we think they'll probably give a ruling sometime in the early fall. Jim, right, right, and then, and just to just I'll I'll just say that that, that I if I believe I'm correct in saying that 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 that's that challenge is based on uh, the 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 contention that Georgia State Constitution has has a no. This is is not. It's based on what Kevin said. It's based on the fact that the state the state legislature passed the six week law before uh, uh, Roe was made unconstitutional. They may turn next to saying if they don't win that case, there'll be another case saying Georgia's constitution has privacy laws that uh, make their the, the abortion law illegal. I stand corrected then. No this problem. is what happens no when problem. Galloway when Galloway and I pretend we're lawyers. Really, you know, I mean, we got you got to keep on <laughs> of that. I'm gonna. I'm okay. One really quick thing, and I, I I'm we're sort of hesitant to get into it, but it's so interesting. Here's why uh, uh, Greenhouse wrote this column. She talks about a 1940s case in the U.S. Supreme Court that I invite all of you uh, can get past the New York Times read uh, uh, paywall to read. In 1940, the Jehovah's Witnesses um, were challenged because they believed that saluting the flag or pledging allegiance to the flag amounts to worshiping secular authority. So they wouldn't let their school-age kids engage in those practices. That went to the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court said, sorry, there is no protection for religious freedom in terms of the, the uh the, the Pledge of Allegiance saluting the flag, they ruled against Jehovah's Witnesses. As a result of that decision, there were violent acts against Jehovah's Witnesses around the country. We were about to enter the war. Patriotic fervor was high. There were uh, Jehovah's Witnesses churches that were burned to the ground. And the court, watching all that, decided to revisit the case a couple of years later, and reversed themselves. And Greenhouse says the justices realized the impact of their decision, which is why she asked the question about whether the justices had any idea of what they were doing when they overturned Roe. All right, we got to get to our final break of the show. Back with more in a moment.
If you listen to this show regularly, you know that my my clock management skills are terrible, which, by the way, is a very bad thing for someone in broadcasting. And because that's true, though, I want to get out one statement uh, before we continue, because I might not have the time to do it later. The final edition of Political Rewind will be next Friday, a week from today, uh, June 30th. And the other thing I want to add to this is you have overwhelmed me, not only in terms of social media posts about what's happening, but my inbox and my emails is just crazy. And, and I am incredibly grateful to all of you who have written to me uh, about how sad you are about this decision. But I'm going to also be honest. I, I initially hoped I could answer every single one of you. I, honest to goodness, not sure I can. So I just want to say I'm reading everything you send me. You have brought just great, great emotion to me as I read your comments. And I thank you so much. And we'll see what happens next. All right, let's move on. Jim Galloway, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene just can't help herself. <laughs> let's set up what happened. Marjorie Taylor Greene had filed articles of impeachment against Joe Biden. Uh, I think it's safe to say if you read what she wants to impeach him on, the grounds are shaky at best. Nevertheless, she went about the process in a formal way. Meanwhile, her fellow ultra-conservative uh, uh, Republican in Congress, Lauren Boebert, decided to uh, f- bypass what Marjorie Taylor Greene's formal process was and, uh, and uh, trigger a mechanism that would allow uh, an impeachment against Biden to come to the floor immediately. Well, it didn't happen, and we'll talk about why in a minute. But man, Marjorie Taylor Greene was very angry about that. Tell us what happened next, Jim. Yes, we had, uh, I think, Bobert uh, approached uh, MTG. Uh, there was a little back and forth. And uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene allegedly said, I've done everything I can for you. I've helped you a whole bunch. And now you're being a, uh, a little uh, uh, witch, except she didn't say witch. Uh, but it was kind of like witch. Uh, and, you know, this is, it kind of tells you exactly what, uh, uh, what the House has become uh, w- w- under under the Republican majority. Uh, first of all, the, the, you're right. I mean, the 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 resolutions are are in c- committee. Kevin, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says uh, he, uh, this is not the right time for it. Uh, they're both basically they're they're both they both want to impeach, impeach uh, uh, the president on policy. Which, uh, which, which is, which is, uh, uh, that's 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 not in the rule book here. But, but again, back to what this the house has become. I think that what they were most upset at, and Marjorie Taylor Greene was most upset, is is that Bobert had stolen a fundraising opportunity away from her. This is all about attention, and it's about campaign contributions. Uh, and and Bobert was 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 uh, trespassing on on that and and if if you're if you're a voter you ought to be you you ought to be concerned about that yeah yeah i uh, mtg uh, accused bobert she said you little b you've stolen the language of my impeachment resolution and are trying to get ahead of me in line by this parliamentary maneuver which will put yours forward adrian you're nodding up and down about this I mean, I don't have much to say except for that. Um, neither of 
Trump has the savvy to um, argue about this in private. Um, you know, from Marjorie Taylor Greene's perspective, I understand about the fundraising. I understand about the upset, but, you know, it would probably be more effective for them politically um, if they weren't um, calling each other out of their names uh, on the floor of the House. Kevin, one of the other things about forget about Marjorie Taylor Greene for a moment and the absurd conduct. This all happened on the floor of the United States House of Representatives. But forget about that for just a moment. Um, Republicans back in the Obama administration on a number of occasions tried to launch uh, impeachment uh, uh, inquiries against him. We know Trump was impeached twice. In the Trump case, I think Democrats could argue they had some fairly reasonable grounds, especially the second impeachment, the January 6th impeachment. Um, and now there's going to be an effort by Republicans to impeach Biden. And there's just this spiral moving forward. Who knows who the next president of the United States will be and whether the party in the opposition is going to try to impeach that president. It's just this uh, complete disintegration of the politics of comedy and cooperation in which people try to actually get something done in Washington. Yeah, I have to tell you, Bill, I'm totally shocked that uh, MTG and uh, Representative Boebert aren't busy saying, let's truly try comprehensive immigration reform and do something good for the country. And somehow they've been distracted by this little argument they're having. It's very strange. <laughs> Donna? And the, the fact that you've got um, the, the two women involved in this who are both uh, for, uh, you know, on the far right fighting for position um, and, as Adrian said, trying to raise money, I think, is the other part of this, because I think that, that people see through what's going on here and do see that it's that language. It's just being the first to do it. It's getting out there. We also know that um, the, there there are people who support in, in Marjorie Taylor Greene's district who support what she's doing. And that's why she's popular within her district and getting out there and fighting fiercely and being in the headlines is is part of her brand. And there she's going to continue to to do those kinds of things that draw attention. I don't think necessarily using the language that she used on the floor of the house was appropriate, but she's a fighter. That's what she's she's there for. And she will continue to do those kinds of things, you know, despite the kind of headlines that she seems to love to get. Yeah, yeah. If, if I could just take issue with something that Adrian said, you know, that that, that this was better, you know, they, they didn't have the smarts, to, the, the, these two uh, representatives didn't have the smarts to take it behind closed doors. Performance is 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 the purpose of this. Uh, the, the argument on the floor of the House to be seen and to be talked about in this fashion is the purpose here. Um, all right, so uh, we, we've come to expect this behavior. Every time I talk about MTG on the show, I get notes from you out there saying, why do you just stop talking about her, ignore her. You cannot ignore her. You absolutely cannot ignore her. Yes, you can be selective in when you decide to talk about her when it really seems to matter, but uh, you won't have to worry about that for me much longer. Um, Jim, I'm going to come back to you uh, because you're a veteran of covering presidential campaigns. Um, 
we got a brand new Republican in the race. Will Hurd of Texas, former uh, member of the U.S. House, an anti-Trumper. He's been critical of Trump for a long time. He was on this show uh, uh, about a year ago, and you were, I think it was the day you were with us. Um, he was terrific in the way he talked about his vision for the future of the party without Donald Trump. But, Jim, I mean, from the very start a year ago, people were saying, Republicans, we've got to keep a f- the field narrow because Trump only thrives the more candidates jump into this thing. And now I think we've got 11 at this point and maybe a couple of more. Right, right. And 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 I th- uh yeah yeah you could get a couple more. Uh I think uh Mr. Hurd was plugging a book when we when we uh mm-hmm. talked to him on the show which should have been assigned to us that something was a foot of this nature. Uh, uh we need to mention that he's a, f- a former CIA officer. Mm-hmm. And of course when he was when he ta- uh, uh uh right after his announcement when he was questioned about Donald Trump that's what he ta- that's what he uh 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 he was most upset about was was the danger that that Trump uh uh, possessing all those documents at Mar-a-Lago, uh, the the jeopardy that he was putting his uh, fellow former CIA operatives uh, 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 in danger. It was it was uh, uh, so he has that he brings that to the table. Is he going to be able to get that one percent uh, uh, that the RNC is requiring to be on the debate stage? Probably not. But you know, and you know, I, I'm I'm. The latest polls this week are showing a little bit of weakness in Donald Trump uh, as a result of this indictment, and I, I'm wondering if uh, if you if if Republicans uh, certain Republicans are now seeing the 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 the, the game changing a little bit. Uh, I don't want I don't want to go there because I've been wrong so many times about Trump, but uh, but but he seems to be losing some of that luster. Uh, meanwhile, I just will point out that um, the Christian Coalition. Uh, is having its national convention in Washington uh, this weekend, and they're going to have the largest gathering of presidential Republican presidential candidates uh, put together yet so far. They're they're going to hear from DeSantis, they're going to hear from Pence, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, and others. I don't see Trump on the bill there, but what's fascinating about this, of course, is that um, these are going to be opportunities for all these others to make their pitch to uh, Christian uh, conservatives, to the evangelical community. So it's going to be interesting to see how all of that uh, turns out. And Kevin, one last quick note. Um, you know, Chris Christie is in the race. He got in about two weeks ago. And and Christie was asked whether, a t- you know, there are these rules for getting on a Republican debate stage. Uh, there are things, how much money have you raised? What percent of the vote do you have in a number of polls? But the other one is you have to pledge you'll support the eventual nominee of the party. And Christie was asked the other day, are you going to pledge to support the nominee if he's Donald Trump? And he said, I'll I'll pledge anything I have to right now. We'll see what I'll do once we get around to voting. Yeah, I give I give him some credit for that because, uh, again, I think that's a move by the Trump supporters to box people in, and uh, they've, and uh, I think Chrissy said you won't box me in. That could end up being a popular point of view. We'll have to see. We'll see. Kevin Riley, Jim Galloway, Adrian Jones, Donald Lowry. What a great way to end the week. Thank you so much for being here today. We're back again with a brand new show in our final week on Monday. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. 
stay healthy and be good to one another. Bye, everybody.